was just Eric. And so I think there's two pages to it. And then I think everyone else has theirs. The book of James. I actually, not that long ago, did a whole series about the book of James on Sunday night. So some of you have gotten a lot of things from the book of James, but there is still more that we need. I think, um, let's see, everyone's good? All right, there we go. So we did a series through the book of James, and I'm going to give you some of the things I talked about through the book of James. I'm going to narrow it down just a little bit so we're not here for, I could take all I taught on the book of James and do that again. We could be here for till tomorrow morning if you'd like, but we won't do that tonight. But the book of James, really the theme of it is this real Christianity. It's what Christianity is all about. We'll look at several things tonight. But I love, is there a buzz in the sound system tonight? No? I, well, I know, my, I know my ears are buzzing too. But um, is the guitar on? It's gone now. Hey, see, even with bad hearing tonight, I still heard that. And so, there's still a buzz in my head, but that's a different buzzing noise. So, you talk about being distracted. I think I'm more distracted tonight, and it's all in my own head. Isn't that a lesson right there for all of us? Sometimes the biggest distractions in our lives is our own head. And that's how it is for me tonight. And so, real Christianity. I remember watching a movie... And I've read the book, too, by um, Louis Zamperini. I think I did his un Unbroken? Unbroken. And hearing about that man and the struggles that he went through. And he got saved at a Billy Graham crusade. And then he went and he, was, he forgave those very people that tortured him. And that treated him so awful. That's what real Christianity looks like. Real Christianity, those of you who are following along, and I've got like six different Bible reading programs I'm doing. I love that Bible app, that there's so many different ones. So some people I'm doing different ones. So some are going through the Bible. Some I'm doing different books of the Bible or on the book of Acts. We read about Stephen. And as he was being stoned to death, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. It's real Christianity right there. But it all comes from the ultimate Christian. The guy who, you got to understand something. Christians, if Christians did not start out by going around saying, hey, guess what, I'm a Christian. No, there was a group of people that the world saw. Like, these people are acting like Christ. That's where they got their name from. In the book of James, this is what is portrayed here. I want you to go with me real quick to the book of Acts for a minute, and we'll be back here. But go to Acts. So James 1 will be in a minute. But go with me to Acts chapter number 8. Acts chapter number 8. As we get going tonight, we think about who wrote the book of James. Isn't it obvious? James did. Is that hard to figure out? You can put number, is that up there? James is the one who wrote it. Most would say the general consensus is that the author of the letter was Jesus' half-brother, James. And that's like the book of Jude. It would be said that the half-brother of Jesus, Jude, is the one who wrote that book. And isn't it interesting that you read the Gospels 
and Jesus' family, his brethren, received him not. They didn't really have much to do with him. And they, or not, maybe not, didn't have much, they weren't buying into this whole thing. But after all Jesus went through, all that he did, his family followed. And, you know, sometimes we might think and we look at, well, a half-brother, imagine having Jesus for a sibling. Just imagine that for a minute. I would not have wanted to be one of Jesus' siblings. You know, Mary leaves, you know, mom leaves Jesus and you at home. And something breaks. It wasn't Jesus, because he's perfect. It would always be, it would have been James. So James would probably be a little, oh, Jesus, you never do anything wrong. That's just how he was. Imagine being related to him. You know, do your parents ever compare you to your other siblings? And why are you like, you know, why couldn't you be like, why couldn't you just be like Jesus? Because I'm not perfect like he is. I, you know, there's lots of different things. You can look at that whole thing. But when we look at this, James, some say it was a different James. And at the end of the day, when we get to heaven, you can figure out for sure who wrote it. But I would tend to lead that it's the half-brother of Jesus, James. James did several things, and we're going to talk about him for a minute before we dive deeper into the message. But we look at Acts chapter number 8. I want you to see where this book is coming from, the book of James. We look at Acts chapter number 8, verse number 1. And Saul was consenting unto his death. That's talking about Stephen. And at that time there was great persecution against the church, which was at Jerusalem. And look at this phrase. And they were all scattered abroad throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. So the church in Jerusalem, the first church, we want to call it them that. They were, Saul was breathing threatenings and he was bringing persecution. And because of the persecution, the Bible tells us here that the, the church in Jerusalem, the members of that church were scattered abroad. Now, we can read in the scripture here, and we can see in, uh, go to Acts chapter 15 for a minute. Acts chapter 15. And I wrote down Acts chapter 15, but I didn't write down what verse I wanted you to look at. So bear with me for a second while I look. Anyways, I'll tell you the gist of it, and I'll save a little bit of time there. Acts chapter 15, we know for a fact that Jesus' half-brother James was the pastor of the church of Jerusalem. So when we get to the book of James, we're looking at it from a pastor's heart to who? Go back to James chapter number 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, look at what it says, to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad, greeting. So who is he writing to? He's writing to all of the church members that were spread everywhere because of persecution. That's the context of the book of James. All those that had to leave their homes, leave other family, whatever the case may be, because of the persecution for serving Jesus Christ, that's who the book of James is written to. As we look at this, it says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad, greeting. My brethren, look at verse number two there, 
Count it all joy when ye fall into diverse temptations. Now, that would be one thing to say if everything's going great in life, right? But he's writing this to the ones who had to leave their homes, who scattered everywhere because of the persecution. And James tells them, hey, my brethren, my church family, count it all joy that you're going through what you're going through. Count it all joy that you are being persecuted. That's really what it's saying. Count it all joy that you've been scattered abroad everywhere. Why? Knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. But let patience have her perfect work. I hear many people say, and they joke around about it a little bit, don't ever pray for patience. How many of you ever heard people say that and joke about it? I've heard a lot of people say it. Um, we need patience to have her perfect work in our lives. Why? So that we can be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. What we need when we go through trials and when we are learning from God and the patience that comes, we need to let patience work its course in our life so that we can be mature and grow into what God wants us to be. Because God takes the trials and the hard times of life and he uses them in a way to help us grow. And we'll get back here in just a minute, but I just want you to see the context where we're at. This book is written to Christians who are scattered everywhere. And James is reminding them of the fact you need to count it all. It's, it's okay. Remember the song we sang a little bit ago, Rejoice in the Lord, He Makes No Mistakes? Yeah, in the moments of persecution, in the moments of hard times, we're to rejoice. Count it all joy. Powerful statement. Hard to live. We see that James, the half-brother Jesus, probably wrote the book. He's the pastor of the church in Jerusalem. He was executed for his faith in A.D. 62. And tradition tells us one of two ways that he died. He was either cast down from the temple or he was beaten with clubs. And either way, neither one sounds very good. Both accounts, and well, there are several accounts of those two things, but of those accounts, it's also said that as he was dying, he cried out the same thing his brother did on the cross. Father, forgive them, they know not what they do. True Christianity. James was a follower of the Lord and penned this book, and we're going to see lots of things here tonight. So who wrote it? James, the half-brother of Jesus. Number two, James is the New Testament Proverbs. It's a great book of wisdom. Hits on many of the same themes as Proverbs. Proverbs, I remember as a kid, I'll just say as a teenager, I probably had a problem running my mouth more than what I should. My parents made me study a lot of different Proverbs a lot. But it was Proverbs and James chapter number 3. And I would tell them, the Bible says, the tongue can no man tame. See, Mom? See? See? And uh, she'd be like, yeah, you can't, but the Holy Spirit can. Yeah, that's true. Very true. But it's very practical, and it's a book to apply to our daily living in Christianity today. 
We see number, the next thing here that James is believed to be the oldest book in the New Testament. The first one written of the New Testament. You say, but this happened after Jesus. I, get, I know that. But each of them were written. Matthew did not pin those words until after Christ had gone back to heaven. And the Gospels and things. And so James is believed to be the oldest book in the New Testament. Something interesting to note on that fact, too, is that many people did not want to, when they, when they got together about the canonicity of Scripture, they didn't want to include the book of James. And one of the reasons was because they said that James chapter number 2, where it talks about being justified by works, went against the book of Romans, where we're at in chapter 4, where it says that Abraham was justified by faith. The thing that you've got to understand is, in God's eyes, we are justified by faith. This world sees us, and in their eyes, we're justified by the works that we do. You see, the world can't see the heart. God can only see that. And in order to go to heaven to be with God, you must be justified by faith. We've talked about that enough on Sunday nights. I think you get it. And if you're not here on Sunday nights, come on Sunday nights. Be a part of church and those things. Um, And so James believed to be the oldest book in the New Testament. And then number four, James was written to Jewish Christians. And then I put for you, there's a little chart there that goes on two pages. It's just interesting to note that James referenced all this. is number, this number five, he referred to Jesus' teachings often. And uh, you'll see there in your notes, I put some things there for you. And the Sermon on the Mount... And parallel to the book of James, there are a lot of similarities there. And so that's there in your notes for you to look at. Go home sometime, do a little homework, look at the book of Matthew, look at the book of James, look at them together and see how they go together. And then that will be a good thing. We're going to look at key verses. James chapter number 1, verse 22. The Bible says, "Be But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. And then James chapter number 2 and verse number 20. But wilt thou know, O vain man, that faith without works is dead? You might say, well, I think that there's other verses that are key verses. When you teach it to someone, you give them those verses. In In all honesty, the whole book is important, but those two verses sum up a lot of what the book's about. And so the title tonight, Real Christianity, Faith in Action. What should the Christian life really look like? That's what the book's all about. You know, Christian is just not a label that we wear. It is a life that we live. That's how it's supposed to be. And that's important for us. And what does true Christianity look like according to the book of James? Number one, we see that there's joy in trials. There's joy in trials. And we think about the wisdom that's needed in that. Wisdom is understanding that trials are for our good. And we need that wisdom. You might not complete, you're not going to completely understand. We think about these Christians. Did they understand why they were scattered abroad? Well, we have the whole Bible. And so you got to remember a good old saying, hindsight's 2020. Yeah, we can look and see why they were scattered abroad. The honest reason is Jesus told them that they were going to be witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and in the uttermost parts of the earth. 
The church didn't spread out very far like they should. So what did, Jesus, what did God do? Persecution came to spread them out to get the gospel everywhere. It had to. So God was, you think in this, he used Saul in a way to help further the gospel before he ever became Paul when he really furthered the gospel. But this is what happens. We look at these verses and we see in James chapter number 1, we read a couple of them here. But I want you to see it says, verse 4, But let patience have her perfect work, that you may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. And this is what the Bible says, If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God that giveth to all men liberally. This is the only time in the Bible you're ever going to see that God is a liberal in any way. And it has to do with giving wisdom, okay? In no other way would I label God a liberal, okay? It says here, If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God that giveth to all men liberally, and upbraideth not, and it shall be given him. But let him ask in faith, nothing wavering, for he that wavereth is like the way of the sea, driven with the wind, and tossed. I've heard many people take this passage... And just talk about if you want wisdom for your life, you just need to ask God and he'll give it to you. And I think that you can take that from here, but you need to look at this in context of where it's at. Why do I need wisdom? To understand why you need to let your trial discontinue and have patience. God's doing something. Jules and I today, we went on a hike and uh, we were, it's one of those, you go up and down, up and down, all around. So we got down to this one area you could see we had this nice hill to climb up. And when you're on the top, it's so nice because you can see everything and everything's great. And you kind of see what's going on ahead of you. When you're down in the valley, you don't see what's coming ahead of you. And you got to understand something. Life is like that for us. You don't know what God's doing in your life. You got to understand. And that's where we have to let God do his work. A lot of times we'll pray, God, just take this away from me. Take this trial away. But God says, hey, I am up here and I see the whole picture. And if Brian is going to become what I want Brian to become, this has to take place. And if Brian's going to be conformed to the image of my son, this has to happen. This is how it needs to go. And so when it comes to joy and trials, we think about the wisdom behind it. And you've got to understand something. We need God's wisdom. It's a paradox. The thing, you think about this, the thing that we want the least is actually what is best for us. How many of you want a trial in your life? Did you raise your hand? Anybody want a trial? Anybody want that in your life? None of us do. But the Bible says to count it joy when it happens. How in the world? You better ask God to help you. And if you do, he will. There's wi- we need wisdom in trials. On one occasion, J.C. Penney, that was really a guy. I know it's a business today, but it was named after the guy who started the business, was asked the reason for his success. And his company for years was very successful. And this is what he said. This was his exact words. Adversity and Jesus Christ. That's why my business is successful. He wrote a great book, J.C. Penney did on leadership. And it's a great book. If you ever get your hands on it, it's funny that his children and grandchildren don't want anybody to see that book. It's been hard to get reprinted, but he wrote a great book on it. You know, today, you know what J.C. Penney's problem is today? Amazon and the Internet. That's the biggest problem for them. And Walmart or Target, whatever you want to say. And so we got to understand joy and trials. You're not going to understand it all, but you got to understand that 
God's doing something, and you got to trust him. And it might be, I don't know what the case may be, but there's joy in trials. Think of the wisdom of it. Well, now, what do we need to do as we face trials? What wis- what's do we need? Letter A, we need to pray. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God. If you can't see how the trial in your life could be, now let me help you out real quick. There are times in our life that the trials we go through are not because God is trying to make us better. It's because of our own stupidity, okay? I'm not talking about you being stupid tonight. I'm talking about, and I've heard people say, oh, God's just, he's having to, he's trying to fix this and that, and then he's, He's just giving me a trial. No, you are stupid, okay? And I know stupid's not a nice word, but sometimes it's the only word that fits. And I think you understand what I'm saying with that. But you've got to understand something. If you can't see how this thing could be of God, ask him to give you the wisdom of what's going on. What we do is when we're going through a trial, we pray, God, take this trial from me. Instead of praying, Lord, give me the wisdom to understand what you're doing through this trial. There's a big difference in the two. That's what James is trying to get across right here. James is teaching that a mature Christian, you've got to understand that for a mature Christian, hardship ought to be embraced with an opportunity to learn, grow, and move forward in their walk with God. God's doing a work in us. And when those hard times come, sometimes we look and we're like, I don't like it. Duh, none of us do. But he's doing a work. And we've got to trust him, and he's going to perform that work until the day of Jesus Christ. Isn't that what the scriptures tell us? Pray. Not that he will, and instead of praying this, Lord, how can I get out of this? Why don't you pray and ask God, Lord, what can I get from this? What can you teach me? How can I grow? How can I become more like you through what I'm going through here? You know, a typical concert piano has over 240 strings on it. When tuned and tightened to the concert piano, it creates a pull of 40,000 pounds on the frame of the piano. Without that tension, you wouldn't have a beautiful concert piano in the way it sounds. The tension, the pressure is important. God may be at work to create something beautiful in your life, and you want him to take it away. When we just need wisdom from him, we need to pray. Letter B, when we're going through trials, we need to learn to trust. But let him ask in faith, nothing wavering. Trust. We can sing the song all day long, tis so sweet to trust in Jesus just to take him out of his word. You need to trust him. It's amazing we trust the Lord for salvation. He can save our soul and he'll keep it preserved forever. But we have a hard time in life and we don't trust him with that. It's a lot harder for him to seal your soul forever than it is to handle a trial in your life. Trust, trust him. We need to trust him. It says, let him ask in faith, Lord, I trust you, even though I don't understand. 
On the wall of, uh, in his bedroom, Charles Spurgeon had a plaque with Isaiah 48.10 on it. And that verse, I have chosen thee in the furnace of affliction. And God's choice makes chosen men choice men. You got to understand, we're chosen not in a palace, but in a furnace. You think about those poor Hebrew boys. They lost their families. They just stand up for the Lord. They get thrown in the fire. But he was there with them. And he got them through. And they even had enough trust in him to say, even if he doesn't save us from this flame, we're not going to bow. How's your trust tonight? The back of money says, in God we trust. And you and I both know that the U.S. government and most Americans do not trust God in that area. But we sing songs and we talk about trusting God and we do the same thing and we don't trust him. We need to trust him. His book's full of promises, full of truth. We need to learn to trust him. And then, letter C, serve. When faced with the greatest trials of his life, what did Jesus do? He served his disciples, didn't he? He washed their feet. In his greatest hour of need, he met the needs of others. And what the book of James does, it starts about talking about the trials of their faith, what they'd been through, what's going on, and then it speaks so much about putting action into our faith. That's what the whole book is about. And it's amazing, and church, may I just help you with this if you're watching online or if you're here tonight, we understand it's amazing how serving others in their heartaches can help us with our heartaches. Far too many people feel too sorry for themselves because they're focused on themselves, and that's not Christianity. Say, but I'm struggling. Then go out and help someone else. Say, that's not very nice. That's truth, though. You want to help yourself feel better? Go help someone else and see that other people are struggling. What we do is, I'm going through this terrible time, and I get that. And, I, and people need to be there for you and help you. But you want to get out of your pity party that you're having? Get up and help someone else. Serve. That's what Jesus did. Jesus could have had a pity party that he was going to the cross. No. What did he do that last time? He's like, for the disciples, I've got something to teach you. I'm going to show you how to be a servant. I'm going to talk about what love's all about. I'm going to tell you about the comforter coming. I'm going to talk about abiding in me. He took the time to teach his disciples things, and I'm so glad that he did. And... We also see, if you look at verse number 13, the Bible says, Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. You've got to understand that the Bible here clears up the fact trials and temptations are two totally different things, okay? So trials are God-ordained. Trials that come into our lives. Temptations we go through do not come from God. Where do temptations come from? Look at these verses. Verse 13, let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lusts and enticed. Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, 
and sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. Do not err, my beloved brethren. Where does temptation come from in our lives? You know where it comes from? In here. I'm drawn away of my own lusts. Every one of us sitting in this room tonight, we have our own lusts and desires. We do. And all of our lusts and desires are different. They're not all the same. But this is what happens. We're drawn away by our own desires, our own lusts. And then the Bible says, and we're enticed. That temptation will come. And then look at what the Bible says. It says in verse 13, But every man is tempted, verse 14, when he is drawn away of his own lusts and enticed. Let me give you a little thought here. And this, I don't even have notes for this. This just, I got stuck on these verses here for a minute, so you're just going to have to deal with me for a minute. Like I said, we'll be done by tomorrow afternoon. So, look at verse 14 again. But every man is tempted when he's drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Now look at what happens. Then when that lust hath conceived, when that desire comes to fruition, when it comes out, it brings forth sin. Now hold on for a minute. Is it a sin to have desires and things and lusts? The Bible says it becomes sin when you act on it. When you think on it, think about that. Remember Jesus talked about thinking on things? It begins on the inside before it ever will come out. But as we look at this, what I want you to see is what we have to do, hold your place here and go with me and you say, Pastor, you're all over the place right now. I still am hearing things in my head, so that's all it is, but bear with me. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and it might be 2nd. I'll know as soon as I get there. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Say, why didn't you just think about this earlier and figure this out? Because sometimes the Lord gives you a few verses to stick on and you do what the Lord tells you to do. 2 Corinthians 10, verse number 3. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. Casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. Hold your place there and go back to James chapter number one. because We're going to flip back to it in a minute. So the Bible says, let no man say when he's tempted, he's tempted of God, because God cannot be tempted with evil, and he does not tempt anyone with it. That's very clear. We are tempted, what does the Bible say here? When we're drawn away of our own lusts, we stir it up inside of us, and we're enticed. Look what it says next verse. Then when lust hath conceived, what we got to do, take scripture with scripture here, when that lust is there and the enticement comes to do what we should not be doing. We need to do what it said back in 2 Corinthians chapter number 10. Cast down those things. Literally, this is what it means. Instead of letting those thoughts permeate in your mind, because that's what we do. We get this idea where we have some, some desire of ours that we're thinking... And you know it's true. Don't look at me like you're a perfect Christian. You've never sinned in your life. You think on it for a minute. 
And you, ooh, that just sounds good. Or I could do this and different things. You're supposed to take anything that goes against God and his word and cast it out of your mind. You want to help yourself with sin? When that thought comes, pretend this bottle of water is your thoughts. So some lust, some desire of your heart comes into your head. The problem is we let it stay here and we dwell on it and we're enticed, we're enticed. And what happens? That lust is conceived, we do it. It brings sin into our life. Sin, when it's finished, bringeth forth death. God's not to blame for when you sin, you're to blame yourself. What we need to do is take those thoughts, take those things that we're lusting after, and cast them down. That's literally what it means. What we do is, instead of just casting it down, we just keep it here. It'll be all right. No big deal. It's here. And we're supposed to take it and get rid of it. That's what we're supposed to do. Cast it down. You have a temptation to drink. You're tempted to look at pornography. You're tempted to do whatever the case may be. That temptation will come. And each one of us have different desires and different lusts in our life. And there are things that you will struggle with that I will never struggle with. And there's things I will struggle with that you will never struggle with. The key is that when those things, and they're going to come. If you think in your whole Christian life you're never going to struggle with sinning, the old man is still here. You're going to deal with him till you either go be with Jesus or the rapture happens. Till then you're going to deal with the old man. And that old man, there are things that that old man likes to do, and when those thoughts come, you can't let them permeate. Because when you do, they're going to entice you. You will sin, and you're going down the road you don't want to go down. So... Yeah, you're tempted. Take those thoughts and get rid of them. Casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. It's important. You want to help yourself with the sin in your life and the things you struggle with? That's what you got to do. Maybe your problem is your mouth. You just can't sh shut up. And you just keep running it, running it, and a lot of foolish things come out of your mouth. Cast that down. Put some scripture in your head. Wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hidden mine heart that I might not sin against thee. One of the best things you can do in your Christian life, if you are struggling in an area and you've got that, you're just being, that lust is just grabbing a hold of you, memorize Bible in that area. And then cast down that thought and replace it with Scripture. Be amazed what that could do in your life. That was all extra tonight. That wasn't even planned. We got to get back to the rest of the notes because we're running out of time. I'm probably just going to read through these. And so sometimes the Lord leads you down a different road than what you're planning. Number two, when we talk about the book of James and real Christianity, we see faith in action. Faith in action. Faith in action. And right there, you got the word work. Bible tells us in verse 22, But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. For if any be a hearer of the word, and not a doer of the word, he's like a man beholding his natural face in a glass. 
and he beholding himself and goeth his way and straightway forgetteth what manner of man he was. Whoso look into the perfect law of liberty and continuing therein, he being not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this man shall be blessed in his deed. Real faith just doesn't say it. Just doesn't sit in church and hear it. Real faith puts what you hear to the ground running. I remember as a kid, my mom, one of the things she told me, I think I got in trouble for something. I hardly ever got in trouble, but every once in a while if I ever did. I would just, you know, one time I think I tried to not get get spanked or whatever the case may be. I said, Mom, I love you so much. And, you know, a little kid saying something like that. I was like 19. No, no, I'm just kidding. I was, I was young when I said that. But I remember her response. She said, if you really did love me, you wouldn't have done what you just did. You can say all day long that you love me, but love is action. I've never forgotten that. I was probably seven or eight years old. Love is action. Faith and action. That's what we're supposed to do. You can read through the middle of the chapter, chapter number 2, verse 14 through 20, and don't get confused. We've talked about it enough, and I don't need to go into to it tonight. He's not teaching about a works-based salvation. He's teaching about salvation that does something. Not just someone who says they're saved, but their life backs up the fact that they're saved. That's what James is talking about here. We understand, we know that faith alone saves. We talked about for, for a ton on Sunday nights. But you've got to understand, as we look at this, your behavior will always reveal what you truly believe. Don't tell me about your faith. Show it to me. That's how it should be. You and I will serve. You think we will give. We will be faithful in action, words, and deeds. That's important. The story is told of a town where all the residents were ducks. Every Sunday, the ducks waddled out of their houses and waddled down Main Street to their church. They waddled into the sanctuary and squat in their proper pews. The duck choir waddles in, takes its place, and then the duck minister comes forward and opens the duck Bible. He reads to them, Ducks, God has given you wings. They should, and they, and they all say amen. With wings you can fly, and once again the ducks all say amen to that. Um, with wings you can mount up and soar like eagles, and all the ducks cry out, amen, they believe it. There's no walls that can confine you if you would just fly, and the ducks are all getting with it in the service, amen, there, preach on. No fence can hold you back. You have wings. That's good preaching, preacher. God's given you wings. You can fly like birds. And all the ducks said amen. Service ends. They waddle back home, and nothing changes in their lives. That's how often, it, that's how it is in our lives. We say, God should change our lives, right? And you say amen to that. And then we don't change. Our priorities should change, and they don't change. The way we treat our family should change, and it don't change. A Christian should share his faith, and we say amen, and then we don't share our faith with anybody. 
Faith needs to have action in it. There's work, and then did I skip something in there? No. Number three, there's also purity in communication. As a Christian, words are important. Words are important. Verse 26 and verse 27. You almost could look at chapter number one of James, and it basically gives you a, an overview of the entire book and just the one chapter. Verse 26, if any man among you seem to be religious and bridleth not his tongue, but deceiveth his own heart, this man's religion is vain, it's empty. This man's, this man's faith isn't real. Well, that's what it says right there. What is pure religion undefiled before God and the Father is this. You want to see what religion, what pure religion is? Let's see what the Bible says about it. All of us would have our own opinions about what real religion is, right? But that's what the Bible says. To visit the fatherless and widows in their infliction and to keep himself unspotted from the world. That's pure religion. I think about our words, and I'm not going to take long because I've ran out of time tonight, but more sins are committed with the tongue than any other part of our bodies. Slander, gossip, lying, discord, boasting, criticism. This little thing is quite powerful. It's very powerful. Be careful what you say. Be careful what you let come out. James chapter number 3 is a great chapter for a Christian to study. And look at, if you look down with me at verse number, um, chapter 3, verse number 8, says, But the tongue can no man tame. It is an unruly evil, full of deadly poison. Therewith, bless we God. We'll take our tongues and we'll praise God with it. And therewith, we'll curse we men which are made after the similitude of God. One side of our mouth, we're praising God and worshiping Him and saying how wonderful He is, and then we're cursing the guy out down the street who's made after God, that God made. And the next verse says, Out of the same mouth proceeded blessings and cursings. And James says, My brethren, that's not how a Christian should live. Can a fountain have, look what it says there, sweet water? And bitter water at the same time? No. It's either going to be good water or salty, bitter water. It doesn't have both. And it says in the next verse, Can a fig tree, my brother, and bear olive berries, either of vine figs? So can no fountain both yield salt, water, and fresh. You cannot have it both ways with your words. You can't be one way with half the people and one way with others. Purity and communication is important when it comes to Christianity. And then, number four, and lastly, godliness in your life. When we think about worship, look at chapter number four and verse number four. Ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God. Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God.